Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. Let me try something a little fun as well, starting our rhetoric sessions, and hopefully that will be of benefit to all those listening, because in fact, reality and understanding it is relevant to answering and understanding the Bible. So when we are answering your questions, understand that the goal isn't just to be the go-to place whenever you are given the opportunity to think, but to equip you to think and make sure that that is what the goal is, of course, in mind. If you have questions about the Bible, whether it's relevant to your time in personal evangelism, your own walk with God, and understanding these issues for yourself, or any combination of the two, we are honored to use what gifts God has given us to equip you for using your own gifts in what he has called you to do as well. If you'd like to send us your questions, we have an email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. It is spelled questions, plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com, and that will be available both during and after the broadcast and before, but that eventually becomes right before, during, so note the point. You can send your questions to us if we don't have time to answer them on the air or during the broadcast. Say you're listening to us on one of our radio affiliates or Reach Radio, aren't joining us online immediately, but want to send your questions to us, that is where you can start. If you'd like to join us live, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. And if you click on the Watch Live tab, the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to ccftucson.com online.church, where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific if you're not on Daylight Savings. If you want to join us on social media, YouTube is a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you give us a like or subscribe there, you'll have the added benefit of being able to not only be notified when we are going live, if you're not listening to us locally, but also have the chance to engage with us in the comment sections, much like our website. Unfortunately, there's also a trade-off, a risk. We do not control when or why we are taken off of those platforms for what we say or think. So if for whatever reason, and I mean for any other reason than technical incompetence, we are not broadcasting on YouTube or Facebook, please join us on our website and we will still be broadcasting there. Any I guess complications on our end will be notified to you through those social media platforms. We look forward to hearing from you there. Also note, if you want to send us your questions through Twitter, scottr4h at twitter.com is the handle. And if you would like us to spell that out for you again, Twitter-esque, scott, S-C-O-T-T, the letter R, the number four, the letter H, at Twitter. So we'll be happy to hear from you, not only through our email address, but also our social media affiliates. And our time is fleeting, and we want to make the most of it, but always time to pray. So why don't we start with that, get into what hopefully will be a source of edification, rather, for our audience, and see where the Lord takes it after that. 
And Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. We ask that we would also be in your spirit, in your mercy, and ultimately equipped by your power to bless you and your people. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be a part of this at all, and we ask that you would be honored as a result of the time that is spent here for everyone listening as well as those participating. Bless Peter and I and allow us to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Reading, writing, arithmetic, that's usually what summarizes modern expectations of education, but in the good old days, and I don't mean like in the good old U.S. of A. in the 60s or the 30s or whatever your golden era might have been, I don't know who would say it was in the 30s, but I threw it out there, there was also another R in that list, and one that they really wanted to emphasize as far as what would properly equip people to be truly educated. And studying the Bible as an education of itself, but it needs to use these sort of methods of thinking that we also want to equip you. What is that called? It's called rhetoric. Um, so actually, there, there were two forms that are left out of modern-day education, dialectic and rhetoric. Um, <clears throat> I'll define those terms in a second real quick, but I'll give you guys three reasons as to why me and Sean are doing this right now and why it is actually very important and scriptural. It, this, uh, this kind of training is present in the Bible. Solomon does a lot of this kind of training in the book of Proverbs. The apostles, there's a reason why we have long-form dialogues in their sermons in the book of Acts, as well as the First Church Council in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, right? This kind of training is actually really, really integral to your faith and to your own personal just life, and that's why it was a part of every rubric of education up until about... 1900s, which is a big bummer. And there are some conspiratorial reasons as to why it dropped out of the education. Uh, I'm not going to get into them right now, but we'll talk a little bit about what it's done to us as a society that it's been left out of the rubric. And by the way, to my knowledge, it's been left out of every rubric across the world. Those of you guys in other countries can let me know if you still learn about dialectic and rhetoric within your school education. But for those of us in the West, it's definitely left out of our educational rubric for sure. So I'll give you three reasons. First one is evangelism. Uh, the second one is indoctrination or resisting indoctrination. And the third one would be interpersonal conflict. So what is rhetoric? What is dialectic? Rhetoric, and this is from Aristotle, who was one of the first people to kind of reclaim the word. The rhetoricians of his day were kind of hucksters. He was able to create a formal form of rhetoric and describe it in a really impressive way. And he is kind of the person that made it very, very popular and widely widespread taught throughout all the educational systems in ancient Greece and throughout the world. This is how Aristotle defined rhetoric. It is the art and the faculty of observing in any given case the available means of persuasion. And because of this, it is a function that no other art contains. So what he's saying is, is that rhetoric is essentially the art of being able to persuade somebody else. Rhetoric is the formal version. This is the art of persuading someone through a speech or a platform. So not a dialogue, but a monologue. So me and Sean are engaging more or less in rhetoric right now. We are explaining things to you guys in a way where you cannot directly interact with us. You can in a way by like putting things in the comment section and things like that, but it's not as direct as you talking to me. That would be dialectic. So dialectic is me persuading you in a conversation where you have equal say as me. So I say something, you say something, and there is an art form in that as well. Now, if you don't know how to do that, and again, let me repeat the three things I said, evangelism, avoiding indoctrination, and interpersonal conflict. 
It's really difficult for you to evangelize if you don't know how to persuade. This is once again from Aristotle. It is not enough to know what to say. We must also say it in the right way. So if you have all the knowledge, right, all the capacity to understand the Bible and the scriptures, but you're saying it in a way that people can't understand or comprehend, it doesn't really matter. This is Paul's argumentation against the Corinthians when they were abusing the gift of tongues, where he's like, it doesn't really matter if you're praising God in your own mind. If nobody understands what you're saying, it's not edifying to the body. It also is something that you see Jesus encouraging his disciples with, let your words be grace seasoned with salt. He doesn't just say, hey, just say the right thing, just speak the truth. There is a way and means in which you could speak the truth that people can most readily receive. This is also what Paul means when he says, to the Jew I become a Jew, to the Greek I become a Greek, to those under the law is the one under the law, is those without the law is one without the law, that I might win the more for Christ. What does he mean? Does he mean if I'm hanging out with a Gentile, I start eating pork and talking the Gentile slang? No, he's saying that there is a means of persuasion that only Gentiles will resonate with. There's a means of persuasion that only Jews will resonate with. There's a means of persuasion that slaves will resonate with. There's a means of persuasion that free people will resonate with. And he altered the way that he spoke to most readily reach the people he was communicating with. And we see him actively do this in Acts chapter 17. We see him use both. In the beginning of Acts 17, you see him using dialectic, where he is reasoning with the philosophers on the Areopagus, so he is talking to them in an, a dialogue format. And then you see him using rhetoric at the end of the chapter when he actually gives a long-form presentation of the gospel, and some receive it and some don't. And once again, there's an art form to it. There's a way that he presents it. There's a way that he communicates it that's very, very amazing. Now, again, Dorothy Sayers, so that's evangelism, right? <laughs> Just in case you didn't catch that. So yeah. that's evangelism. How can you share your faith if you know the truth, but you don't know how to adequately share the truth? And if you've ever felt like, if this has ever prevented you from sharing your faith, where you're like, I don't really know what to say or how to say it, if that's ever entered into your mind, perhaps it's because you don't know about rhetoric. Perhaps you never learned this in school because I didn't and Sean did it. Uh, I think me and him mostly got the school of hard knocks. It's only been in the last couple of years uh, that I've actually studied this in a formal way, actually reading the writings of Aristotle and going through their works. But at any rate, uh, some of you who have never really gone through this, you've never actually challenged your faith in real and meaningful ways, one of the reasons why you might avoid it is because of fear is because of a worry of being contradicted or conquered within an argumentation and things like that. So you want to say? Uh, just briefly noting, an uh, easier way to understand this is basically the kind of education that every child hopefully has had is through their parents when mm -hmm. they are asked, where are your manners? Or is that how you talk to people? Mm -hmm. What's being challenged or encouraged is your rhetoric, your mm -hmm. ability to communicate. Right. So it's not necessarily speaking or debate, it's manners. That's mm -hmm. a way to understand. This. Right. It's a way to communicate in a way that is not only conducive to ethics, and he makes this claim, by the way, within the book Rhetoric, where he said a sophist, I don't, I don't have time to get into that right now. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> a sophist is someone who uses rhetoric for basically ill-gotten gain, right? Someone who's going to use it to delude you, to take advantage of you, something like that. Uh, he says a true rhetorician is the person who wants to persuade, but they want to persuade in a way that's going to actually 
help you discover truth, right? Um, another example, by the way, this is this does bear talking about uh, in Plato's uh, the allegory of the cave. Uh, so this comes from Plato's Republic. Plato writes about the allegory of the cave. Again, I don't have time to get too detailed into what he meant, but it's basically a metaphor that he uses for education. And he talks about, imagine that everybody is basically, you start out being like an individual who is chained, staring at a wall, and behind them is a fire, and behind them, uh, behind the fire, are people casting shadows, using the flame as a light source. And then behind them is actually the outside world. And he says, People, when they're talking to kids, essentially the way that they are communicating with them, the way they're educating them, is like people casting shadows using flame. They're not showing them the actual thing. So if I cast a shadow that looks like a dog, a child has an idea of what a dog looks like, but they haven't seen a real dog, right? They're not prepared for the actual experience of holding a dog. They just have a general idea of what it's like. Now, if I stop there, though, as an educator, if I'm like, ah, it's just enough for you to know my version of reality. It's enough for you to just know what I think these shapes are like. You don't actually have to leave the cave. You don't actually have to go outside. That's what we call indoctrination. The real educator is someone who excites the child to want to leave the cave and see a dog for themselves. I hope that metaphor makes sense, which leads to the next point. If you don't know rhetoric or dialectic, you are going to be fodder for indoctrination. So this is Dorothy Sayers. She gave a speech called The Lost Tools of Learning in which she argues for a classical education and a reinstitution of dialectic and rhetoric within the educational system. By the way, those of you guys who don't know, Dorothy Sayers was a fiction writer. She wrote mystery novels, was a close personal friend with C.S. Lewis, and to my knowledge, the first woman to graduate from Oxford. So a pretty awesome lady, very smart, and a Christian. So Dorothy Sayers says this, has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it's ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined? Do you put this down to mere mechanical fact that the press and radio and so on do uh, have made propaganda much easier to distribute over a wide area? Or do you sometimes have an uneasy suspicion that the product of modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be at disentangling fact from opinion and the proven from the plausible? Very good quote. Essentially what she's saying is because people can read. At her time, the visual medias weren't around. They didn't have news media. Like They kind of did, but not really. I mean, you had like one channel, PBS, and that was about it. Um, but primarily the way that the news was able to interact with people was through newspapers. And she's saying, it's great. More people can read today than ever before. Awesome. But you know what else that means? That means they're reading things in the newspaper. And if they don't know how to think through the arguments being made and say, this is a good argument or this is a bad argument, they are fodder for indoctrination. They are people that will be taken advantage of very, very easily. If you don't know about the laws of logic, if you don't know what's being said, I don't know how many of you guys have tried to listen to a debate, whether it's political or an actual atheist versus Christian debate or something like that, and you're like, I don't know who won, that's probably because you don't know much about the laws of rhetoric. If you're listening to it and you don't know who won, that's because you're mainly listening to confidence. And oftentimes people project confidence who are very good rhetoricians, right? So people who are very good at public speaking, they project confidence. And even if they are losing the debate, 
if you were just going off of their stamina, if you're just going off of their energy, you'd be like, oh, man, they answered that so easily. Well, yeah, they answered it, but was it a good answer? And do you have the ability to parse it out and say, was that, did it actually answer the question? Did it actually address it in an adequate way? Is that sufficient enough to prove a point or not? Uh, this is something that's very important because, again, if you're just going off of emotion, then you might be swayed. And this gets into the parts of rhetoric. So rhetoric is divided into three parts. It is pathos, which refers to emotional reasoning. Ethos, which refers to character, right? So you should believe me because I am this kind of person. What I'm saying is plausible and credible, and you could believe that because I'm this kind of person. And logos, which is actually the main point of rhetoric. So the ethos and the pathos, the emotion and the ethics of the individual is just to get you to the logical reasoning. However, most people today, most politicians, both Republican and Democrat, they're such good rhetoricians, I would call them sophists, they're such good rhetoricians that they never actually get to the logos. They never actually get to the logical argument behind their worldview. All they do is emotionally move, manipulate, and prop themselves up as authority. They don't actually get to a logical debate. If you've ever heard someone say, let me give you an example of this, if you ever heard someone say, well, the science says, that's an appeal to authority, and again, you should know, that is not an adequate logical uh, argumentation for truth. That's just an appeal to authority. That's just meant to make you feel stupid if you don't agree with what they're saying. It's not an actual argument. So very, very good to ensure that you're not fodder for indoctrination. In Dorothy Sayers' day, this was important. In our day, it's way more important. <laughs> the amount of propaganda out there has never been higher. The amount of manipulators out there has never been higher, and the access to it has never been uh, viable for someone who is younger. Every kid with a smartphone, every kid with an internet connection is open to all sorts of manipulative people who want to take advantage of their innocence and their, la and their naivety. So if you don't know how to talk to them about these things, about how to show them what is a logical argument, why is it a logical argument to think through these things, they will be fodder for that kind of uh, personal indoctrination. Uh, the third one that I said is interpersonal conflict. So I'm a, I'm a marriage counselor primarily. And the number one issue that I see from people who come to me for marriage counseling is communication issues. They don't know how to get their point across to their partner. And they deal with it in a couple ways. They either yell over one another, in which case they never get to the point, or they become passive. They're like, ah, oh, you know, argument doesn't really lead to anything. No one's ever right. I'm just going to kind of do whatever my partner says and envelop a bunch of bitterness and resentment towards them. And that's how we're going to live our lives. So that's usually what I see in marriage couples. They have a lot of unspoken tension within the marriage and they get by by just sweeping everything under the rug and never addressing it. That's a huge, huge issue. That's at a very small level. Some of you guys maybe even had parents that talked to you that way. They just kind of yelled at you or something, but they never engaged you in the dialectic, like talked you through something before. But even at a more macro level as a church, uh, this is something that we have to understand. A lot of churches have splits, right? Doctrinal splits that happen because people don't know how to talk to one another. Uh, you had a threatening of that, like I said, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, there was almost a time where the early church split. And the reason why they were able to remain together was because they had a long-form dialectic debate, right? So these apostles came together, 
and they were able to give their perspectives biblically. And you know what? The people who made the best argument won, right? The people who had the most biblical argumentation and sound theological reasoning, they're the ones that won, and we have that recorded for us. Now, to be fair, the Apostle Paul says, it didn't really matter to me who won that debate. I already knew it was true, right? So he's and like, that's what's yeah, key. That's what's key. So I'm not saying that rhetoric uh, rhetoric creates truth. I'm saying that rhetoric gives, a, gives people the ability to discover it for themselves. So when rhetoric is properly being used, it helps people to discover truth for itself. And that's what me and Sean and Scott on this show are always trying to do. We're not trying to just educate you. We're not just trying to say, like, this is true, just believe us because appeal to authority. We are trying to argue the point across, not so that you know it because we say it, but you know it because you know that it's true. We have shown you or revealed to you that it's true and believable because of verifiable reasoning. That's what rhetoric is aimed at doing. Anything you'd like to add to that? No, and just noting the conclusion, this is obviously an introduction. In the coming weeks, every Thursday or Friday, for those of you listening on Reach Radio, we'll dedicate some time at the start of the broadcast to just go over a very brief and basic topic. And as well, we'll be providing clips of this uh, not only on our YouTube page, A Reason for Hope, but also hopefully on our own website should that platform go down. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about rhetoric, we're not telling you how to win, we're knowing how to recognize truth, mm -hmm. not j what to say to people, but how to talk to people. And understanding the difference is going to be key, not just in how we talk to others about our faith, but understand it for ourselves. Test yourself to see you're in the faith. We are asking, well, how do I know if I'm still saved? How do I know if I've lost my salvation? How do I know if I'm still saved? How do I know these things? Well, with a working understanding of the Bible and a proper use of rhetoric, we don't use Plato and Aristotle and Socrates in order to establish those things, they simply recognize what we call truth or the nature of God. How and to find it, yeah. And that's what we're trying to instruct you in. So if you have questions in that regard as well, more than welcome on the broadcast. Just make sure the end of the question leads us to the Bible, and we'll be happy to address it. But if you can join us on Thursdays as early as possible, that will be what we'll be talking about. Hopefully it's a source of edification, and it's uh, definitely a blessing for him and I, because it forces us, or I guess uh, sets aside time for us to get back into this, because we benefit from it too. But going out to our questions now, starting off with Isaiah, he wants to know when the curse is lifted, uh, he wants to know, will the serpent or snake, that is different, we'll clarify that in a minute, walk again instead of crawling on its belly? Yeah, understand, Isaiah, what you're referencing is essentially three layers of something, there, which there was a misunderstanding in the first two. Obviously, when we read Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the serpent, the question first needs to be asked, was that serpent introduced as a snake, or is the language suggesting a comparison? That's the first thing. The second thing is how it was applied. Do we have reason to believe, or do other passages in the Bible claim that serpents once walked, and because Satan... Uh, took their form, that suddenly means that they got the short end of the stick, or were they already like that, and the comparison is an apt one. And then the third is, if in fact the curse is lifted, was the result the serpent crawling on his belly, or is this talking about something else? So let's start with the first. When the serpent is introduced in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it's more cunning than all the beasts of the field. Obviously, we understand that to a point. The observation was once made, 
how long would you last if you had no arms or legs and were usually put in a desert environment? You have to have some sort of plan and way about going about things, but that's not the point. When the Hebrew language uses the word nahash. That is a word that can have multiple meanings. We know all about this in English, but the difference is actually quite stark. It can mean a slimy little danger noodle, but what else can it mean? It can mean shining one. Ah, and is there reason to believe that since Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 describes the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, could he aptly be described as a shining one? Well, yes, in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, he's known as a cherub, a very exalted angelic creature, a heavenly creature, and as well, uh, not uh, one of positive repute, but one still in the, with the facts on the table. So the question then is, and this is where at least a brief understanding of the biblical languages comes in handy. You could get this without it, but it helps in the chapter itself. If this shining one is introduced, could it be a slimy danger noodle, to again belabor the joke, or could it be that he was appearing to Eve as a shining creature and obviously didn't, uh, I guess, fulfill the punchline where two muffins are sitting in an oven. One says it's hot in here, and the other one says, oh my gosh, a talking muffin. We go, oh, well, did animals once talk? And after the fall, well, that, that obviously Eve was talking to the snake as if that was normal, and then they'll use Balaam out of context in order to say, well, he was talking to animals all the time. No, he was angry enough not to react in horror because an animal talked to him one time. There's a difference. But here's the point. Going into the first misunderstanding, is Satan introduced as a friend or a foe, a source of truth or a deceiver, and is that the emphasis, not his physical form? Uh, yeah, so Ezekiel actually gives us a little bit of insight to this. So in Ezekiel 28, we have a reference to Satan. This is uh, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So no Location here. checks out. <laughs> yeah, location checks out. Uh, every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So we get this idea that Satan had a role in the garden, right? So there was some sort of an anointed or uh, ordained role for Satan to have within the garden. Chosen. Chosen, right? Which is why Eve kind of isn't surprised to see him, right? And isn't surprised to talk to him. Uh, that makes sense that he would have some sort of interaction or presence with humans. We don't know exactly what that role comprised. There are theories. Uh, in this verse, it talks about him having timbrels. People are like, was he a worship leader? I don't know, maybe. maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's very possible. Uh, I also like his description, though. It's all these various stones layered on one another. So is it possible that Satan's appearance, and if you notice, they're precious stones. They're very beautiful stones. Is it possible that Satan had kind of a scaly appearance to him, that he was a very beautiful creature, but he wasn't a humanoid? He wasn't like a, uh, a person that looked, a being that looked like a human being, like a biped or something like that. It's possible. It's very plausible. But I think from the text, all we really get is that Satan was very beautiful. He had a very beautiful, shining forth type of appearance towards him, and he was trusted by mankind. He was right? very smart. And he was very smart and cunning. And because of that, he has some sort of association with the serpent. Because remember, 
back then, the serpent wasn't a dangerous creature, right? There was no death. So you wanted every, to say noodle. Yeah, noodle. <laughs> uh, and honestly, whenever someone says that snakes once had feet, that seems like a very terrifying creature to me, like a giant millipede or something like that. I, I'd rather not believe that. But anyway. Uh, snakes unnerve you enough already. Yeah. <laughs> so in Genesis 3, listen to the words of how God curses Satan. And remember, he is talking to the serpent. He's not talking to a serpent. He's not, just, he's not talking to all serpents. He's not talking to all serpents. So God's not just like, man, I'm so upset. And he just <laughs> finds Curses snakes. the Nahash. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, you're done, you know, because of, because of what Satan did, you're all screwed. That's not really what seems to be happening here. So let me read the passage, and I'll, I'll, sh- uh, I'll show a little bit of what Sean already uh, spoke about. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So there's two ways to look at this. Either A, the snake is symbolic of Satan's fall from glory, or B, God kneecapped all snakes in the garden as a punishment for what Satan did. And note, normally we don't shy away from a literal interpretation, but as you're pointing out, if it makes sense, right. that would be difficult to reconcile with the nature of God. Obviously, in Genesis, things are starting, so there's they're kind of writing the rules. Right. But if, on the other hand, we were to say, what do we actually know about serpents? You can make this ridiculous caricature of Christianity and its descriptions of our origins, or you can ask, what is the language talking about here? When it says, eat dust, well, I've had pet snakes before. They ate, well, I've spoiled mine a little bit. Euphrates always got uh, uh, dipped in uh, chicken soup, her uh, little frozen rats, and that, that got her all in t- in t- uh, interested. But that's another topic. The point being made is this. I like snakes. The creature is told, you will eat dust all your days. Now, what is that a reflection of? Obviously not his diet, right? but right. so it could be, if Again, it's not literal, yeah. a symbol. A symbol of how Satan is, I'm, well, I'm sorry, how the serpent crawls on his belly and is in the dirt, just as Satan once again had an anointed position, and now he is brought low. So it's almost, not in a joking fashion, but a pun, a double entendre, a dual meaning, like the Nahash in a physical slimy sense, Mm -hmm. just like you, you'll be on your belly. You'll be cast down, right? which is, again, how that language was used. If you're saying, I'm going to make you lick the dust off of our shoes, that is what? Victory over you. Right. And then it goes on in the next verse to say what? There will be enmity between you and the woman. You will bruise his heel, referring to the woman's seed, and he will crush your head the first messianic prophecy. So what's the flow of the passage? We don't, by the way, we don't have any biblical evidence that Jesus stomped snakes. No, that, <laughs> that was, was a, <laughs> a creative license choice in Passion of the Christ right. and a few pieces of artwork, but the mm-hmm. point still remains. When we're talking about just the text, obviously there's some language going on here that either has a plain meaning or a sane meaning, right. and we want to devolve to the second. But if, on the other hand, we can do both, even better. Right. What's being described? Well, it's a prophecy of the Messiah. What would he do? Well, he wouldn't have much against snakes, yeah. one of his creations. <laughs> yeah. He would definitely have something against the serpent, but what is a serpent? It can mean a snake, but it can also mean a shining one. How else is it used? See Revelation 12 and verse 9. It's referring to the devil, right. who isn't exclusively a snake. In fact, right. I think it's kind of unfortunate. They are 
cute creatures. But uh, that's <laughs> and oftentimes he's referred to as like a dragon or a leviathan. Or so a lion. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So just note that point, Isaiah. So we've taken kind of two out of the three steps as an issue then. When the curse is done, how will snakes function? Well, the only thing that we're told about, and this is important, about uh, mankind's relationships with snakes, along with any other creature that we generally tend to avoid right now, is given to us in Isaiah chapter 11, where kids can interact with these things and find no risk involved. Mm-hmm. That a, a child would stick their hand in the viper's den and not be harmed, there's a lead them. And of course, that's usually something you might see with puppies or with cats usually the former, but the point being made is this. Animals, from their foundations, when the curse is lifted, at least from nature, won't be a threat to us anymore. They are now because they kind of have to function in a fallen sinful world. They do what they can. But if, on the other hand, we were to impose, serpents originally had arms and legs, but Satan, oh, Satan, he made it so that now they're the noodle. No, that's not justified in the text. But if, on the other hand, we take that passage and say, what was the flow of the whole conversation? Where else is that term used? And how else is that applied? Then we can come to not only avoiding a misunderstanding, but also an objective conclusion to your question, which was, again, what will snakes do post-fall? They won't hurt us. You guys will all be on my team again. So that's the point. <laughs> exactly. And a uh, similar answer to your question about plants, animals, fungus, bacteria, viruses, things like that. Uh, what we could be sure of is any creature, any living thing that has a function of harm or death associated with harm or death, it's not that they will necessarily disappear, but their job will be different. So, for instance, fungus right now functions by basically feeding off of excrement and rotting things, right? So, uh, and and having to be put into darkness. Now, well, like any other creature, it's trying to exist. And right. existence includes reproduction. The problem is where and on what it reproduced is kind of yucky, thus we don't want to interact with it. That's right. Same thing with bacteria, viruses, pathogens, and so forth. Exactly. We haven't seen them in a context where it's positive pre-fall, mm-hmm. but we do see them in a post-fall context, so we only see them usually in a negative light. Right. And and there are microscop- microscopic creatures that have no ill will, right? They don't really do anything negative or anything like that. So it's very plausible that viruses and pathogens will exist in the new creation. They just won't affect us in any negative way. Or they'll only be doing the good things. Like right. people say, what purpose does a mosquito serve? Purifying tepid water right. or stagnant water. They can deal with those pathogens, and they, in fact, flourish in their system. The problem is when they also inject those into our system, then we get things like malaria, typhus, and all those other things. So, note, uh, positive things. Right. (laughs) That's what the fall will, will, when its removal will be reintroduced. Exactly. Uh, Nina has a question. If I have a loved one not in heaven, will we forget them? Will they remember me and the natural emotions that follow that? Uh, how will the memory bank work for those in new heaven and earth be like? Well, again, 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is the best description of a post-fall state. We'll be able to love, to reflect God's nature just as Jesus does, but understand the passage ends with saying, I know in part, and I even prophesy in part, I can communicate these things, but when I am fully known, I will know just as I am known. Hmm. 
all the things that he was talking about are what will be known. I can express God's love to a point in this state, but I won't be less loving, less Christ-like when I see him face to face. I'll be fully Christ-like. And there's other passages that clarify this as well. When we're talking about the perspective of our loved ones, though, it's the same issue. We'll see everything in light of Jesus' presence or his absence. And in the state known as hell, or separation from Jesus, that will leave us not just in the same kind of depressed and hopeless state that we see ourselves in now, but with no possibility of any comfort or restoration. It will only get worse. We would then impose that on ourselves and say, well, in my fallen sinful frame, I imagine a loved one separated from me, and even in light of Jesus, who I don't see face to face, I then think that would be pretty miserable. It will get worse and worse because there's no hope. Well, that's the problem. I'm imposing a hell-based perspective on what heaven's mindset will be like in light of Jesus' presence, who will, a la Revelation chapter 21, wipe away every tear from our eyes. Sorrow is not a bad thing. God feels sorrow. He feels grief. But that is always met with the necessary and appropriate comfort. And if, then, he is with us, that is what will ultimately matter most when we naturally will miss our loved ones. But understand, the only reason that you love them or that they are lovable to begin with is because, in some way, they resemble or reflect Jesus. If, on the other hand, I'd say, well, Jesus won't be Jesus unless someone who vaguely resembled Jesus at this time isn't there with me to also be with the—that doesn't make sense now, does it, now that I say it out loud? This is the point, you know. Yeah. um, As I said, I'm primarily a marriage counselor, and uh, there are several couples that I've counseled that have ended in divorce, and it wasn't a divorce that was desired by both members, but one part of the couple gave into illicit and terrible sin, usually from what I do, uh, sexual sin, the types of adultery and things like that. And so what you have is you have I love this person, and they'll say it to me. They'll be like, I love this person, but everything that I loved about them is being taken away. So you could see once sin really gets a hold of somebody, and it starts to, as James says, starts to produce death in them, and it starts to rob the image of God from them and their ethics and their character and who they were and what they look like, it begins to uh, move you in a place where there's nothing left to care for, right? All that's left is the fall. And so while they regret it, there is a divorce. But what they're grieving over is they're grieving over who that person was and who they knew they could have been, not who they are right now. So in heaven, what you have to understand, there's a reason why fire is usually associated with heaven. In heaven, all that's going to be left of that person is the fall. There's not going to be any image of God left on that person. Everything that is lovable about that person will be taken away, and all that's going to be left is their sinful arrogant nature. We actually see this in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus tells the the story, I I believe it's a real story, of the rich man and Lazarus, in which the rich man, when he's in hell, you see that there is nothing good about that guy. He is arrogant. He is completely just trying to, he's trying to order Lazarus around, even though he's in hell. (laughs) Lazarus is in heaven. He's trying to exercise his authority. Yeah, in paradise. He's accusing Abraham of, of not being able to give enough information to his brothers. There's nothing left good in that person. 
Uh, I'm sure there were people that loved that person. I'm sure that guy has parents. Maybe those parents are in heaven. I don't know. But everything good about that person had been burned away, and all that's left is ash and emptiness. So uh, once someone is in hell, everything good about them will be melted away. We will, as Sean said, we'll mourn for the fact that they didn't receive Jesus, that what could have been for them won't be received, but we'll also marvel at the justice of God to allow that person to have the free will decision to go away from God if they want and to experience the consequences. Um, I, I always think about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 in regards to this, therefore we don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Uh, a good example of what Paul's talking about, and this is in regards to memory, is that there are certain points in my life that were really, when I was in them, they were very dark. Um, they were very, very dark moments in my life. But now looking back, in light of what I have now, I realized those parts of my life were kind of integral to being the man that I am today. So the things that I struggled with, the, 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 uh, the mistakes that I made, all of them led me to be the person that I am today and have the blessings that God had for me, my wife, my daughter, uh, the, the baby that we have on the way. All those things happened because of those dark things in my life. So looking back, I still remember how dark those moments were, but in light of what I know now, I don't mourn over them anymore. I'm not inconsolably grieving over them because I know what those moments worked for me. So what Paul's saying is in heaven, we will have perfect memory, but we will have perfect memory in light of Jesus, right? So we will see everything in light of what he was doing, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of everyone in this world. We'll see how connected we were to God's eternal plan of salvation, not only for us, but for the entire world. So very, very beautiful, but we don't see that yet. You know, we will in heaven, though. Yeah, we won't care less. We'll actually care more than we do now. Right. We'll be capable of caring more than we ever have been, but also have perfect perspective, and that can't be discounted. Here's a question from Annie who wants to know, regarding who was the true 12th apostle. Obviously, in Acts chapter 1, we saw that they elected Matthias to take his place through lots, which, by the way, wasn't a flip of a coin in the sense that, just for its own sake, that was a legitimate way of finding out. Why? Because he met the qualifications. Right. But more on that in a moment. Right. Well, they narrowed it down yeah, to two and, qualified And that yeah. was what was key. But he, um, <clears throat> Annie wants to know regarding whether Paul should have been the twelfth apostle, because inciting Revelation 21 and verse 14, only twelve apostles are still being recognized in the New Jerusalem. So the question is, was Matthias going to be one of those <laughs> pillars? Is Paul going to actually be the pillars? And the disciples jumped the gun, or the apostles rather, jumped the gun. Was this legitimate? Was Paul illegitimate? What's going on here? Um, go ahead, I'll... I'll at comments. Yeah, so Paul actually never considered himself one of the Twelve. Uh, we have evidence that he didn't. This is probably the prime passage that we can see where he distances himself from being uh, one of the Twelve. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse... Uh, we'll start in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas then by the 12. Okay. 
So he's making it clear, the 12. This would include Matthias. So Paul is recognizing Matthias. How do we'll we know get that? evidence for that in a moment. Right. How do we know that? Because if he says the 12, well, there's a problem with that. The 12 that existed at that point was one short. <laughs> one of them had kind of betrayed Jesus and hung himself. So and clearly, went splat. So yeah, he wasn't just over there. He was there, there, and over there, too. He was everywhere, right? So uh, when Paul's retroactively looking back and he's saying that Jesus revealed himself to the 12, he's recognizing that there are still 12. So he's including Matthias in that number. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul is separating. Sometimes we get a little confused about the apostle, the office of apostle versus the 12. Um, so all of the 12 were apostles. Right. but not all apostles were members of the 12. <laughs> exactly. And so Paul is saying that there were apostles around during that time, and he's saying they all saw Jesus, and then I saw him later. So he is, even though he is an apostle, and he declares himself to be such in his letters, he is saying, I wasn't among the original apostles that saw Jesus. So, Sean, what is an apostle, and what was an apostle, and how do they distinguish themselves from the Twelve? Well, it, the word apostle literally just means a cargo ship, something that brings something else to somewhere. That is a sent-out one in its most plain term. Now, if we're talking about the capital A apostles, as we like to call them, the Twelve, your qualifications were basically whether you could be noted as an eyewitness of what? Well, everything that they had to replace Judas Iscariot from being, since he was also formally one of the Twelve, and also he notes the Old Testament passages that predicted one of them uh, is going to go splat and he needs to have his office replaced. But notice this, when he gathers together a large number, in verse 15 we're told about 120, these were all people of the 500, noting this as well, 120 people at one time were all discussing how are we going to deal with this problem. And he says this, verse 21 of Acts chapter 1, Therefore, of these men who have, A, accompanied us all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so first they had to have been there from Jesus' ministry. They would note specifically from the time of John the Baptist, uh, baptism of him, all the way to his ascension into heaven. Why does it say that? It doesn't specify in the text. Well, that's where the Gospel of Mark starts, and Peter was qualified among those numbers, so note that point. Right. The second is, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, of these he must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So you don't really have to take my word for it. So what would he have to have seen? The ministry of Jesus, his burial, as he noted, is the gospel, and his resurrection when he ascended into heaven in our midst. Now, who could qualify for that? Well, of the number, they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, first step, and said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. You have chosen which Paul also recognizes, to take part in this ministry and apostleship. So not just that they would be sent out, but that specific service, right. that ministry, from which Judas by his transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. What that's in reference to, feel free to ask. <laughs> 
They cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now note, no words of correction. Luke accompanied Paul for a good number of his ministry yeah, Luke time. could have easily put in like, but they messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, they any jumped word. the gun. Yeah. Any word, note. But right. God is recognizing this. God is calling this. And the calling by lots was what? Not just flipping a coin because we can't decide which of the two. God made the decision. And on what basis? Referencing the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's an important one. If you're going to start reading the New, what did they do? The same thing they did to decide whose ministry would be what in the temple. They were all what? Levites. They were all qualified to perform these various roles, but as we see in Luke chapter 1 with uh, what was uh, John the Baptist's father's name, Zacharias, Mm -hmm. it fell on his lot. They were drawing straws or whatever, but the point being made was they distributed these ministries by these lots, and they said, okay, God's calling you to this. Why? Because he met the qualifications and the money, I guess, (laughs) fell in his direction, not one over the other. So note that point. When Paul claimed to be an apostle, it wasn't fitting any of these qualifications, but it was certainly enough to be sent out. For what purpose? As we read in Acts 15, we'll continue to minister to the children of Israel. You go to who? Who are you being sent out to? The Gentiles. Not the twelve, not the ones sent to Israel, as Jesus directly commissioned them, but to the other nations, the non-Jewish people. We're thankful for his ministry, and God's used him mightily. But note, the Apostle Paul, not of the Twelve, but the one who was sent out with that calling in ministry. It's like, well, why read Paul's letters? Doesn't that mean it's inferior? No, it's all the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's no more inferior than if Luke was writing the Gospel as opposed to Matthew. One was an apostle, one wasn't. Mark wasn't Peter. He got his information from Peter. The right. source is still Peter. Right. So the Twelve, in other words, had a position within the early church that can't be replicated no. because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry. So because of that, when people are coming up with doctrine, and who can correct them? The eyewitnesses. The They'd one who like, heard it from Jesus. That's right. I heard it from the horse's mouth, man. I heard Jesus say this, that doesn't fit, or that does fit. So in the early church, you had this office of the 12 that were able to lay hands on people and establish them in various ways. That's why, for instance, James and Jude, also not members of the 12. No. But because of the 12's basic laying on of hands and recognition of their ministry in the early church, we read their writings. Same with the writer of the book of Hebrews. We don't really know who wrote it. Right? There's, but we there's can test the content. We can test the content, and we can test the fact that the early church, including the Twelve, approved of what the book of Hebrews said, doctrinally. And same with the Apostle Paul. So he had that laying out of hands. He had that ministry from the Twelve that allowed him to have that ministry of the Gentiles. And since Paul was probably the most educated person in the early church, he wrote a lot, right? And yeah. he was a very good writer, and that's why we have a lot of his writings preserved. And by the way, in Second Peter chapter 3, what did that capital A apostle of the Twelve call Paul's writings? Scripture. Ah, so that's why. So note that point, and then going back to Revelation 21, then whose pillar will likely be the Twelfth? Matthias, Matthias, given the information we have. Sweet name, too, so that, why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, going back to the Scorpion King. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's one of our contradictions for the day. I've been holding Speaking this of off. Rhetoric, yeah. yeah, I've been holding this one off for a while, but uh, I guess we just we have to. Um, apparently, it's a contradiction. This is number 42 of where God dwells. 
In the Bible, it says in Psalm 9 and verse 11 that he dwells in Zion. That is correct. Uh, there's also a passage that says that God dwells in the heavens. That is according to Psalm 123 and verse 1. Now, We'll go more into this, obviously, next week, but we make the habit of saying that if someone ever brings to you, oh, a contradiction in the Bible, it says this and it says this, so which is it? It's a contradiction, as if any difference in information is a violation of the second formal law of logic. What is a contradiction? So contradiction is something that, and this is very important, it is, some, is two things that cannot be true in the same way and at the same time. Okay. So, for instance, I cannot say this table is made out of wood and this table is made out of metal. Wood is not metal. <laughs> that's right. A Those does are, not equal B. That's right. So uh, something can be a seeming contradiction, meaning that you could say something that seems as though it's not accurate, but more information can be allowed. So, for instance, I could say uh, this wood, I mean, this table is made out of wood and this table is also has metal components. Seems like a contradiction because you're like, wait, wait, it's a wood table, but you're saying it's metal. Well, that's because it has both, right? The, the top legs is are wood, metal. <laughs> the legs are metal. So something that can be harmonized. So you only call something a contradiction when it cannot be harmonized. The two truths cannot be the same at the same time. And cannot and I don't want to are not the same thing. Right. So when a atheist or a skeptic is going to level this objection, what would be our pointing out, our answer to this uh, fallacy of the excluded middle? <laughs> There's, uh, okay, God dwells in Zion, that's a nickname for Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem is almost at the top of, or he's in the heavens. Unless you think that Zion, Jerusalem, is in the heavens, that can't be true at the same time. Well, is there more information in the Bible that says God is also, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, omnipresent? Yeah. <laughs> so this is something that's, again, throughout the Bible. Psalm 139 is the place that most clearly kind of delineates this. We don't even have to leave Psalms. Yeah. Psalm right. 139, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I ascend to the highest of the heavens, you are there. Mm -hmm. If I go to the farthest depths of the sea, <laughs> you are there. Even there, you will lay hold of me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? These truth statements in the same book and in the same passage, different chapter, obviously, right. but the same note and source, the same context, the same literary style, God dwells in Zion. He's amongst his people. God dwells in the heavens. He's above everything. God dwells everywhere. That includes Zion in the heavens. What's the problem? The exclusion of that information. They're either hiding or willfully ignorant of that information. We don't want to attribute motive. That's also a fallacy. But we also need to make sure that if you're going to make a blog post like this, you at least are willing to do more than 10 seconds of homework. Right. And that also needs to make sure that it's not just quoting yourself, right. because that's not a contradiction. Right. So because of God's omnipresence, and because this is something that uh, Trinitarians argue often, and I agree with the logic, if you believe in a Trinitarian view of God, then the ability of God to manifest himself in one singular point in history, time, and space, this is something that God can do. So God's omnipresence isn't destroyed if God can have certain members of the Trinity perform actions in time and in space while still maintaining his role as God. So in the Incarnation, for instance, Jesus was a man. God, the second person in the Trinity, was incarnate. 
dwelt, lived a perfectly natural life. So when someone says, well, who's running heaven when Jesus was on the earth? God, right? Because God is multipersonal, he can do that. He can have one member of the Trinity exist in time and space, and the other member of the Trinity exists outside of time and space. That's not something that God is prevented from doing. Yeah, so just make sure more information is always best when it comes to these issues. As we always say in answer to a contradiction, first step, know what a contradiction is. Second, call their bluff, say when and where. And if you can either include more information or if you find out the information they present doesn't actually say that, then you can resolve the issue. We got about two minutes left before we have to sign off, so I'll throw this last one out to you, Peter. Uh, regarding unequally yoked relationships, can Christians in a relationship with each other be unequally yoked? Uh, not in the sense that Paul's using it. So when he gives the commandment, do not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. With a non-believer. <laughs> right, that is a, that is a very specific commandment. It is a very specific thing that he is saying. Now, if you're saying that, is it possible to be unequally yoked with an individual where you're just not seeing things correctly, and those divisions can be great enough that even though you're both Christians, the relationship still won't work? Absolutely. So an example of this would be, you know, uh, one thing that my dad told me when I was getting into ministry and dating Emma is he's like, make sure that she shares your vision and calling. And what he meant was, if she's not okay, if she's like, you know what, I want my husband to be able to make this type of income and do this, and she wasn't okay with the type of income you'd make as a pastor and your commitment to the church, and she's like, I want to be at this other church over here, and I feel called there. Even though we're both Christians and compatible, that difference would be enough of a reason for us not to be together, for us not to be married. So there are instances where that's true, but none of them are moral, right? That wouldn't be a moral reason for us not to be together. It would just be a practical reason not to be together. Which is what Paul was referencing in the book of Joel, where he says, how can two walk together if they not be agreed on the destination? That's right. the point being made. A yoke to harness that usually put around animals, not calling your wife a cow, but the point <laughs> being made is this. Right. You're hopefully going to be in balance and aligned with each other. It's fitted to both of you to to head to a common goal and fulfill a common purpose. Relationships are always going to have conflict. The goal is to be as uh, yoked as possible. Right. So yes, you can, but does that mean that if you have these conflicts that can't be resolved, the yoke can't be adjusted or grown into? That's different. But yes, the answer in one sense, no in another. Note the points being made. <laughs> Music starting. So God bless you. Thank you all for the time. Look forward to talking again tomorrow and as well next week for Rhetoric Thursday. We'll see if this kicks off. So then God bless you. <laughs>